From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. What's the role of unions in the 21st century? First, we'll hear from the authors of a recent report on that topic by Cal Matters. Then we'll get a regional perspective from three Valley labor leaders. Dylan Savary with the Fresno Madera Labor Council, Pedro Ramirez with the Kern Inyo Mono Labor Council, and Tim Robinson with the Merced Stanislaus Tuolumne Labor Council. The future of unions in California and the Central Valley, boom or bust? Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Income inequality, the income gap between the highest paid executives and lowest paid workers has never been greater. The issue is more pronounced in California where there's a yawning economic divide between coastal and inland counties and between rural and urban communities. In fact, in California, one of the most expensive states in the nation, has a workforce where by 2021, one third of the workforce was making $15 an hour or less. A recent survey found that 70% of Californians say the gap between the rich and the poor is only getting larger. Could labor unions that negotiate wages and benefits on behalf of workers be the answer? The majority of Californians seem to think so. Eight in 10 California adults completely or somewhat agree that it's important for workers to organize so employers don't take advantage of them. Our guest is Jesse Bedane, a reporter with Cal Matters, who recently did a series of articles on the role of unions in the 21st century. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thanks for having me. So how are unions perceived um, in California generally? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, in 2020, uh, 65% of the California public approved of unions, which is about 10% below um, the approval rate of the 1950s when unions were at their peak. But today, unions are still perceived as largely pale, stale, and male. They're associated with old manufacturing jobs that were largely dominated by white men, um, white working class men in the, in the middle of the last century. Um, and, and unions still haven't been able to get over the kind of hump and into the 21st century, um, uh, even though they have a high approval rating. Yeah, and, and the workforce obviously is changing, right? It's, it's, it's younger, it's more diverse, and if, it, if unions have a reputation of being pale, male, and stale, that, that, that's a problem. Exactly. Um, so um, so what, what types of workers are in unions? Are they predominantly, I assume a lot in the public sector, um, private sector quite a bit less, I would assume. Uh, exactly. So if someone wanted to, to, to form a union, let me ask you this question. Uh, they want to form a union. How would they go about doing that? Unions typically start when workers uh, see problems in their workplace, and whether that's low wages or poor health care or bad safety, and they start talking to each other. The workers we spoke to started, you know, talking at work and after work and uh, deciding what they wanted to do about it, and then 
would often go and get help from uh, a local union that maybe represents workers that they <clears throat> in their sim similar industry. And then um, once they get 30% of the workers' signatures saying that they want a union, um, the National Labor Relations Board confirms that they can go forward with an election. And if a majority of the workers vote for a union, then um, the union's created and they can then negotiate uh, a contract that will kind of set the bar for the standards of work. Yeah, and, and that and that 30% is just a rule the NLRB has created before they get involved. Um, but it also says something about you know, unions, as well as the NLRB, the government agency, doesn't want to get involved if, if two workers out of 100 want a union. They want to show that there's a substantial number of people that want a union. And I've also heard that the statement uh, said that the best union organizer is a bad manager. Um, and I think that says a lot about, you know, why people do form unions. It's, it's typically, it's not a union coming into a workplace, but rather workers themselves getting together and deciding that, that they want a union to correct the situation. But, you know, you hear unions, you know, being, you know, you know, big labor or, you know, union leaders being union bosses. It kind of sounds kind of threatening and, and you know, intimidating. But you report that, you know, in reality, labor unions, particularly in the private sector, have been declining for years. What are the numbers? Yeah, in California in the 1950s at the peak, um, about 40% of the workers were unionized. And over the, the last, you know, 60, 70 years, that has declined to 14% in 2018 with a slight uptick in 2020 to 16%, but uh, a very steep decline. So a huge proportion of California workers haven't had the same opportunity that those workers in the 1950s had to mm -hmm. negotiate on their behalf in California. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? I mean, it's, it's some people would say it's, it's political. You know, a lot of people point to Reagan and, and, and the PATCO strike, the air traffic controllers. But really, it, it's, it's more than that, right? It, it's, it's the changing, you know, economy, you know, going from manufacturing to service, uh, for example, you know, the more uh, diverse workforce. Um, it, it's things that the workforce workplace is changing. And so unions have had a bit of a challenge keeping up with that, it seems. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of jobs have been shipped overseas, jobs that were typically union jobs. Um, unions would say that businesses have gotten better at stopping union drives um, and businesses would say that unions are losing relevancy. Um, and yeah. Then, you, know, you, you, you often hear that argument that, you know, unions were good in the past, but they're no longer no longer really essential. Um, but, you know, when we come back, we're going to talk about the erosion of the middle class. It's become an increasingly worrisome trend. You know, is the decline of unions part of that, uh, the reason for the erosion of the middle class? And if so, could a resurgent labor movement um, close those gaps? Or would more unions impede economic growth and restrict job opportunities? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. The Maddie Daily e-newsletter provides you with a quick, comprehensive, and up-to-date look at what's happening in Valley politics, as well as what's happening in Sacramento and Washington, D.C. that impacts the Valley. Be more informed about what's happening in your community and your Valley. Sign up for the Maddie Daily e-newsletter at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So are unions a good thing or a bad thing? I guess it depends who you ask. Uh, we're talking with Jesse Bedane with uh, Cal Matters, an award-winning nonpartisan nonprofit uh, journalism venture uh, committed to explain California politics, how it works, and why it matters. So Jesse, I wanted to ask you about the decline of unions. Uh, has that contributed to the uh, nation's growing income inequality? And would union membership uh, in the private sector help shrink that wealth gap? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there aren't many studies on it, but the ones that do exist, one from Princeton in particular, that used new data 
from the last century found that uh, the decline of unions contributed to about 10% at least of the wealth gap that we now see in California. Um, and another study found that uh, the decline of unions uh, widened the gap between male workers by 33% between low and high wage workers and 20% for women. Um, and that's largely in part because unions, if you imagine the finances in a state as a pie, um, unions help spread the pie more to the workers um, than just to the to the C-suite. Yeah, um, Samuel Gompers, one of the uh, one of the founders of the American Federation of Labor, was once asked in, in front of Congress what what unions wanted, and his response was very pithy. It was one word. He said, "More," <laughs> and I think that really sums it up. Right. They want a bigger slice of the pie. It was interesting that the uh, California Future of Work Commission just issued a report. And they said that uh, for low-wage workers, having a union will increase their you know, economic situation by 39%, as opposed to getting a college degree, which would increase it 33%. So you could argue that unions have a bigger impact economically on workers than college than getting a college degree. Um, you know, I'm just wondering what effect union has though on, on like issues like job security and um, safety uh, in the workplace. Do they have a big impact that way. They do, yeah. Um, just taking, for example, some you know hotels during the pandemic um, that are represented by uh, Unite Here, which is a, a union in part, in part that has a local in San Francisco, and um, many of those workers were let go at the start of the pandemic, but their uh, union contract stipulated that they needed to be the first ones rehired when the hotel started rehiring. So there's uh, unions really focus on keeping workers um, at work, even if they have to leave, um, they get priority for coming back. So it's been a I huge see, Yeah, seniority plays a big role in that, obviously. Um, unions like seniority, because I think it's an objective way as opposed to relying on, on a manager's subjective opinion. That's what unions would say. Um, the other thing too, is that there is a difference in termination and discipline. In union situations, right, that's something called just cause. There has to be a good reason in a non-union situation, the legal standards with something called employment at will, which means the employer can do it for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. So it's a pretty big difference in terms of job security. And in terms of, I think I read in your report that in terms of filing safety complaints, um, more likely, if you're a union member, more likely that you'll file a complaint with OSHA than if not. I guess I, I guess you maybe some of those non-union workers are worried about retaliation. Yeah, the, the union workers don't have to worry about retaliation as much, but also unions offer that support network of, I, I want to file an OSHA complaint, and the union can help a worker to do just that. Yeah, yeah, they, they do provide that additional protection. But, you know, companies would argue that, that unions just increase costs, uh, impede profits and growth, and they're going to limit opportunities. So, you know, the argument is you don't need unions and, and or that unions are a thing of the past. Um, is that true? Well, if you have a union that's that's demanding higher wages and better health care, there's inevitably going to be a cost to it. It's just how how bad the cost will be and how much it will impact the business. And the studies that we, we have looked at show that um, there isn't a huge cost, but it does impact, say, job growth by about 4%, for example, um, uh, and can pull money certainly out of the, the business's coffers. Um, for small businesses, that's a much bigger concern, and unions tend to avoid very small businesses. Um, but for larger businesses, it doesn't have a, uh, an enormous impact. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, too, if, if unions ask for too much, they price themselves out of the market. A good example, Frank, you can look at, at, at uh, uh, retail food, right? all the, the self-checkouts. You know, to, to the extent that the wages are too high, the companies are going to look for other ways to, to automate to, to save those costs. We've only got about 45 seconds left in this segment, but I want to ask you, you know, 
you've reported that unions aren't all bad for, for business. How so? Yeah, that was my colleague, Grace uh, Gaudet, who did a fantastic job on that. Um, what she found was that unions in some cases, and this was a study come out, coming out of Europe and some examples in California, can actually support communication between the employer and the employees, um, which can just facilitate a more efficient workplace um, generally. So that has actually worked in some businesses in California and certainly worked in, in some businesses in, in Europe. Yeah, it's it, sometimes it's if you have an internal system, a way to deal with your complaints, you don't file lawsuits. Well, I want to thank Jesse Bedane with CalMatters for joining us. Up next, unions have long been involved in the political process, sometimes indirectly by advocating for employee uh, legislation, pro-employee legislation, sometimes directly by asking for increased wage and benefits for public sector workers. Should they be active in the political arena? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Want to stay current on the major political stories in your city, your county, and the San Joaquin Valley? Follow the Maddie Institute on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Some argue that unions' influence subverts the political process. Others argue that unions, like public sector unions, are no different than any other special interest group, like a corporate uh, political action committee. We're talking with Judy Lynn, a reporter with Cal Matters, who recently co-authored a series of articles of, on unions in the 21st century. Uh, welcome to, to the Matter Report, Judy. Um, Good to be here. So I want to ask you, you know, labor unions are a major influence at the state capitol, for sure, are spending money uh, primarily to help Democrats, and when Democrats are elected to get pro-labor legislation. So let's talk about union spending and political, political activity. Uh, what are the numbers? Yeah, let's start at a really high level. You know, last year, if you look at the National Institute on Money in State Politics, um, they poured in about $123 million into local uh, state political campaigns. Um, now, to break that down a little bit, you know, at the state legislative level, it was $16.3 million. Um, if you look back at some of the proposition, the major fights, um, Prop 22, um, when the gig companies like Uber and Lyft put up a lot of, and DoorDash put up a lot of money to overturn um, uh, AB5, uh, the, the um, it was kind of a, it was a kind of a, a redefinition of what an employee was, and unions were very involved in that. And you do see that on the propositions. Unions are they're always putting a lot of money in these things. Yes, it's 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 all about uh, political influence. You know that there's uh, an effort that that you know Art Pulaski, the um, leader of the California Labor Federation, which is like the umbrella organization, mm -hmm. like the Association for Unions, right. you know, he indicated like it's always good to go to um, a business or a business group and knowing that you've got friends in powerful places. You know, he he, he admits that. Yeah, yeah. And he, he just stepped down. He's going to be replaced, it looks like, um, by a, a current uh, assembly member uh, a person. And we'll see if that happens. But, um, you know, organized labor... Uh, has a big influence at the state capitol. Um, you know, a lot of this legislation that passes through, like the California Teachers Association, um, they have a big influence. Absolutely. You know, their you know their their, uh, their mantra is to empower workers, and so you know you you see uh, gains in the legislature to provide overtime for farm workers, uh, mandatory paid sick leave. You know. Uh, increased parental leave benefits um and and look the the biggest one of all so far was uh the the labor's ability to cajole jerry brown to go with the 15 dollar 
our minimum wage. You know, that that they, that was a tremendous win. And then they're, and they're always pushing, they're pushing that agenda, um, you know, for, for workers. Let me ask you this, though. There was um, a recent uh, decision concerning uh, public sector unions. Um, there was something in the law called fair share that, you know, if you were a public employee and a union was representing you, you had to pay your fair, you don't have to join the union, but you had to pay the fair share of that union's work for you. Um, recently, the, this more conservative Supreme Court said, no, no, that's not constitutional. That's a violation of those employees' free speech rights. A lot of people thought, well, that means it's it, dues are voluntary, which means that, gosh, unions are going to lo lose money and they're going to lose influence. Has that happened? Not at all. The, the conservative dream to squash out uh, public sector unions did not come to pass here in California. I know some numbers went down in Wisconsin when um, the governor there um, did the uh, right to work um, movement, but um, here in California, it didn't. It it was uh, did not come to pass. Um, in fact, you know, events overtook things. Uh, I, I I I talked about um, AB five. You know, the employment status. The the labor around 2018 19 was really able to rally around uh, this issue and and galvanize uh, gig workers just as. Uh, inequality became, you know, front of mind for a lot of people. Yeah, we only, we only have about uh, 30 seconds or so left, but I'm going to ask you this. You know, when you survey state and local governments, unions are very active at, at that level. Which public sector unions are the most effective or seem to have the most clout uh, when it comes to improving members' wages and conditions of employment? Oh, wow. I would say there's essentially two buckets. There's the public sector unions, you know, think of CT, uh, California Teachers Association, mm -hmm. you know, police unions, firefighters. And then there's the bucket of, of labor uh, unions serving private sector workers. And then there's the mix in between. Um, they all have their strengths. And, uh, you know, right now, SEIU has been making a big play to uh, in, in improve wages and conditions for fast food workers. You're seeing that uh, front and, and center in 2022. And you're going to see more of that, I'm sure. Hey, I want to thank Judy Lind uh, for, for joining us. Up next, what's the future of unions in California? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Do you want the Valley's future political leaders to be civil, fact-based, bipartisan problem solvers? Consider supporting the Maddie Legislative Intern Scholar Program that provides Valley students with the opportunity to develop public leadership skills while gaining practical knowledge of the day-to-day -day operations of government and the political process. To learn more, log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Hepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, to state the obvious, the workplace is changing in many ways. First of all, we've got a more diverse workforce. Secondly, traditional sectors like manufacturing have declined as a result of foreign competition. And third, we have entirely new sectors like app-based gig work and online retail that have grown exponentially. Have unions adopted, adapted to this uh, growing and changing economy and changing workforce? Our guest is Grace Getty, um, a reporter with CalMatters. So um, Grace, I wanna ask you about, you know, there's a lot of talk about employees and independent contractors. There have been some legal issues around that recently in California. So just to get things straight for folks, what's the difference between an employee and an independent contractor? Sure, thanks so much for having me. So. A lot of legal protections and rights are bundled with full employee status. So things like minimum wage, things like overtime, workers' compensation, um, health-related benefits, and independent contractors, for the most part, do not are not entitled to those benefits. They work a little bit differently. 
They can potentially, you know, do business with several different employers. Generally, they have more flexibility, but they lack this kind of bundle of rights that legal employees are are due. Yeah, I mean, when I try to explain this to, to students, because I teach a course in, in, in employment law, is I say it's it's A to B. If there if there's an arrow between A and B, in other words, they're telling you how to get to point B, that's an employee. If there's just in a week, I want to see you at point B, i.e. the backyard done, that's an independent contractor. It's kind of a simple way, kind of a right to control, simple way to kind of understand the concept. You know, in 2019, the, the Supreme Court, California Supreme Court, expanded the definition of who qualifies as, quote unquote, an employee. Um, later that year, that decision was actually codified in the state law, signed by the governor in a bill called AB5, an infamous bill, um, just to sum. Um, what did the court's decision and the legislat legislature's actions mean in practical terms? For California workers? Yeah, so the court's decision came up with a three kind of a three pronged test for who should be considered an employee. And one of the prongs was, you know, is, is this worker who is maybe currently an independent contractor doing work that falls outside of the company's normal business? And that had kind of big implications because, say, if you're a driver for a gig company like Uber, Driving is not outside of Uber's normal business, right? So this test, um, based on how you know lawyers and legal academics were understanding it, would have shifted all of these folks who are currently independent contractors into being legal employees. Yeah, um, and, and that's it's, it's it's a huge issue, and and actually it prompted a lot of the transportation companies, the app companies like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Instacart. They're kind of upset by this, so they put Prop 22 on the ballot, they spent $200 million. It's the most anyone's ever spent on a proposition to basically over, overrule it, change that. Um, not surprisingly, um, it won uh, on the ballot. What did Prop 22 do? Yeah, so Prop 22, basically, after the passing of this law, which you just mentioned, AB5, kind of potentially turned all these independent contractors into employees. Um, Prop 22 basically carved out that for gig workers and turn them back independent into independent contractors and then added a few benefits that they didn't previously have. So gig companies committed to paying drivers, for example, 120% of minimum wage during their quote engaged time when they're actively transporting a passenger. Now, a lot of time drivers are on the road, they're not actively transporting a passenger. They're maybe traveling to go pick someone up or waiting for someone to get to their vehicle. But so that, there was, was big, that was a big issue, right? That 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 downtime when they're not being paid was was a big issue for these for these drivers. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and and so they did they did a few other things to kind of give. It's kind of like independent contractor plus, right? There there are a few extra things that they've added on for these special work, kind of a third classification of workers. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was, I think, accident insurance. Uh, I think there was some healthcare subsidies some new um, public safety protections um, that got bundled in with this. And then, you know, they also, in Proposition 22, it was, um, they added the rule that it would take a seven-eighths majority. Yeah, of the that's, the thing, that's the thing that really, like, wow, that's a super, super majority. Listen, we've only got about 30 seconds left in the segment. I want to ask you this, you know, Prop 22 has already been challenged. One court said it's, you know, unconstitutional. This is an ever-changing legal landscape. What's the future of unions in this new environment? It's a great question. Yeah, I think both sides, both you know, labor and the companies are waiting to see what happens with this court case, and that may change where you know what happens to gig workers in the coming years. 
certainly there have been a lot of um, you know threatened strikes in the past month, contract negotiations. There's certainly a lot happening in labor in California right now. So we'll have to see what the future holds. That's a good way to end it. I want to thank our guest, Grace Getty with Cal Matters for joining us. Income inequality in the Valley is even more pronounced than the rest of California. Yet the labor movement has struggled for years in convincing Valley workers that unions are part of the solution to, and not the cause of, their economic situation. Is that situation finally changing? We'll ask three labor leaders from the north, central, and southern parts of the San Joaquin Valley. Tim Robinson with the Merced Stanislaus Tuolumne Labor Council, Dylan Savary with the Fresno Madera Labor Council, and Pedro Ramirez with the current Inyo Mono Labor Council. That conversation next. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. In the Central Valley, a whopping 82% of the residents recently polled view the availability of well-paying jobs as either, quote, somewhat of a problem, unquote, or a big problem, quote, unquote. That may not be too surprising. It's well known the Valley wages have historically lagged wages for similar workers in other parts of California. What's the cause? Is it due to, is it due to the lower cost of living here, or is it because the level of unionization is so much lower in the Valley than other parts of the state? Would increasing union membership in the Valley hurt or help our economy generally, and Valley workers in particular? Our guests are Tim Robertson with the North Valley Labor Federation, Dylan Savoy with the Fresno Madera Labor Council, and Pedro Ramirez with the current Inyo Monio uh, Labor Council. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for being here. So um, let, me, let me just jump right into it. Um, I'm assuming you're going to argue that unions not only help Valley workers, but the Valley economy as a whole. So uh, Pedro, let me start with you first um, in, the, in the south part of the Valley. Let's start with a basic question. Why do you think increased union membership in the Valley would be good for our economy? I mean, it just comes down to folks that have middle-class jobs have more money on their pocketbooks, right? Which they can use to buy things, services, goods, and that circulate that money circulating in the Valley, the Valley economy is good. So we, we need to continue to grow those Valley jobs, those middle-class jobs, which tend to be unionized, you know, jobs with benefits, pension, retirement, all the, all the, the good stuff in order to have a secure future here. Dylan, um, you know, in, in the Fresno area, I mean, what, what's your thought on that? I mean, there are some people that say that, you know, unions just drive up wages, making the Valley less attractive for businesses. Yeah, I, I want to push back on that. Who, who really says that, right? I mean, if you polled every person in the entire region and you said, how many of you want uh, your employer to keep more money and uh, give less money to their employees? Uh, nobody would agree with, uh, yeah, I want my I want my employer to have a a bunch of cash flow that does not trickle down to the folks that actually do the work. So at, at the end of the day, uh, it doesn't come down to, um, you know, should the employer make more money and give it to could give it to their shareholders, because uh, a lot of the businesses that come here are not small businesses, they're major corporations, uh, Amazon being one of them. And we want workers to take home more of the share of their, uh, you know, of their labor. And if that's a couple bucks more an hour, if that's retirement security, if that's uh, a good health care, uh, the ability to give your, your daughter braces, those things are basic human needs that go a long way that corporations and small businesses do pretty well by their workers. But major corporations should be paying their fair share and workers deserve to be able to retire, you know, in dignity. 
you know, Tim, what about the North Valley? Are, you know, are unions good or bad for the economy? Well, they're good for the economy. And just to add on what we were saying, uh, in your introduction, you talked about how wages in the Valley are uh, much lower than they are in the rest of California. More than that, we have uh, families who are working full-time, sometimes you know, multiple workers in a family, sometimes multiple jobs, that still can't make ends meet. We're seeing cost of living and business productivity rise while wages are staying the same, making it harder and harder for folks to raise a family in the Valley here. We need to fix that and we need to raise wages. One of the mechanisms that can do that is allowing workers, empowering workers to stand together and demand, as Dylan said, a, a, a bigger share of the profit and a little bit more respect and power at the workplace so that we can balance out this economy and make sure that working is actually something that can help you um, sufficiently raise your family. Yeah, and I think people sometimes don't understand that when unions are elected uh, to, be, to represent the, the workers, the only obligation employers have is to bargain in good faith. They are not required to reach an agreement. They're, they're required to bargain in good faith. So um, that's the standard. It's not you have to have an agreement necessarily. Um, but let me ask you this, Dylan. You were, you're saying you know, how important unions are to, to, to working folks. Uh, if the unions are so great for Valley workers, why aren't there more workers in unions? Well, recent polls suggest that um, you know more than half the uh, ununionized workforce in the United States would want to be in a union if they had the option. Uh, but there are you know corporations that have spent the last thirty years professionalizing union busting uh, as as a practice. So there there are more than two thousand law firms and union busting folks throughout the country that get paid to push back on unions. Well, and, well let, me, let me ask you a question. When you say union busting, and that's a term you know, people have probably heard before, what do you mean by that? What kind of tactics are we talking about? Well, look at the recent cases with Amazon or some of the other places where they have uh, you know, failed to reach a union. And, and the, you know, the, the newspaper says, oh, well, workers voted two to one against the union. But in reality, you know, Amazon would have went in, fired several union organizers, threatened people, put mandatory meetings together, uh, and then the NLRB will find that Amazon broke the law on dozens and dozens of cases in this one election, but the financial consequences to breaking the law is so minimal that, uh, you know, corporations just incorporate that into the cost of doing business. Yeah, and, and just for our, for our listeners to understand that the NLRB that Dylan's referring to is the National Labor Relations Board, and they're the ones who oversee uh, private sector uh, elections uh, for unions. And there are some, when we talk about union busting, some of the things you sometimes hear from unions are, you know, corporate surveillance of workers. Uh, Dylan's mentioning, you know, the termination of workers. One of the, one of the issues that unions would argue um, is that uh, union members, um, if they're fired in retaliation, or people who want to have a union, are fired in retaliation, there is no, there are no punitive damages. The only thing you can get is, is your back pay. So sometimes companies think it's in their economic interest to take that action because uh, it scares the other workers so they don't want to have a union. But, but Tim, let me ask you, um, same, same question, you know, in the North Valley, why aren't there more unions? If they're, so, if they're such a good thing for workers, why don't we see more of them in the Valley? Yeah, I think uh, Dylan had a really good point about kind of national uh, structures and, and, and getting unions in place. We also have very local challenging power dynamics. Many of the workers in the Valley um, are either farm workers or food manufacturing workers or warehouse workers that are really kind of disempowered positions. We have large corporate employers that can 
that can very easily, all of these workers are at will and they can very easily kind of cycle through. Okay, let me, let me interrupt you again because you're, you're using terms I'm not sure audience knows. So I want to just clarify things. So when you say at will, what that means is the employer is free to fire a worker for a good reason, a bad reason, or no reason at all. That's the legal standard. Now, of course, there are exceptions. You know, can't fire them based on you know race, color, religion, sex, national origin, things like that. But the basic general rule is if you're a non-union worker, you can be fired at will. It means the employer you know, doesn't like your green socks, they can fire you. Um, they can fire you for any reason. Uh, that's right. Way, what's the difference in a union contract? So what kind of protections do they have in a union contract? Uh, well, union union contracts all have four cause uh, provisions, which means you have to be fired for some work-related reason um, or, or terminated for some work-related reason instead of something arbitrary, which is the standard in California. Um, if you're not in a union, more than likely there does not need to be a legitimate reason for you to be terminated. Um, but you know, kind of aggregating all of this together, particularly with these larger you know, corporate employers that, as Dylan mentioned, employ all of these kind of advanced surveillance and psychological tactics, the idea of a few hundred or a few thousand low-wage workers uh, standing together in union to try to build a better uh, system is really, really challenging, and it's a really, really fearful situation when, uh, when you know, as low wage as that job is, it's something necessary to keep your family surviving. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Pedro, what, what, how do you see this? You know, in, in the South Valley, how do you see the, the, this issue? I mean, you don't have to see. Well, I guess you see unions in, in the energy industry uh, in Kern County, but as a general rule, you don't see a lot of unions in the South Valley either. Why is that? I mean, a lot, a big. A big piece of the issue that, that Tim alluded is just the type of industries we have in the Valley, right? We haven't really missed, hit critical, an industry that really is a high employer other than within the public sector. So you have your teachers unions, right? And you have your healthcare workers. Those are some of the larger employers here. When we're looking at the private sector, we look at in the South Valley, we, we look at obviously the energy sector where we have a pretty, pretty high rate of unionization there. Uh, and we looked at the logistics sector, right? We, we're seeing increasing warehouses pop up in Kern County through the South because of just the entry point to, to Southern California. But we still have a long ways to go. A lot are, of are many of those unionized or most of those not? not? Most of those are not, uh, but the unions are trying, right? The Teamsters amount aggressive campaigns and just like Tim alluded and, and, and Dylan, they're, they're met with barriers, right, uh, from the employers. Uh, when they try to unionize. So it's it's a mix. The, 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 the hard part here is finding qualified organizers that could mobilize the workers, right? We, we have a shortage of union organizers as well in the Central Valley. Um, if we were to get those folks, train them up, I believe we would have better outcomes in our organizing campaigns in the Central Valley. Outside yeah. of that, it's diversifying our economy that's going to get us the union jobs. Because um, we, we do have uh, a, an economy that is still very agriculture related, which is very difficult to unionize. Yeah. You know, Tim, I want to ask you, there's this weird dichotomy when it comes to union membership and, and, and Pedro alluded to it, you know, pretty strong in the public sector and public sector, teachers, firefighters, police officers, fairly very high level of unionization, very small portion, typically in the private sector. Why is that? Um, I think it's the same answer. Um, there are um, there, there's actually laws protecting uh, public sector workers from union busting that we've described, you know, in all of these private sector campaigns. Um, and this is all jobs that it's uh, it's harder to replace people. Um, and uh, and uh, you know those unions have been able to maintain power and sustain um, these employments. Now I want to point out 
that all the, that this is just allowing people to make decent middle class wages. You know, your average public sector worker is not getting wealthy. They're just able to make ends meet. Um, we should be aspiring for all workers to reach that level so that they can, um, you know, comfortably provide health care for their children, have good schools, a roof over their heads. Um, and, uh, and, we, and we believe that unionization is one way that we can help raise up the private sector, many of these private sector workers to that level as well. You know, I want to I want to jump to a topic here, uh, Dylan. Um, you know, one of the complaints among conservatives is the requirement that public agencies pay what's called a quote unquote prevailing wage, which typically means union scale on public works projects like roads and, and public buildings. The argument is that it generally greatly inflates uh, the cost of government projects. What is your response to that criticism? Yeah. So if you look just a couple layers deep, you'll notice that, um, you know, within the building trades, uh, the organized building trades, you know, we have five year apprenticeship programs in most of the building trades and they come with the absolute top quality of, of, of service and the absolute top quality of safety uh, mechanisms. So, you know, who wants their government tax dollars to be spent on, uh, you know, workers that are not trained to the highest degree? We have the best workers in the industry that that have the the minimal amount of safety accidents and meet all of the um, you know public demands as it relates to everything on the job. So uh, when we spend our tax dollars, we want the building to be done right the first time, right? We want that project to last as long as possible, and we want nobody to die. And by the way, if I'm going to spend my tax dollars on something that's getting built, I want those workers to be not in poverty. I don't want my I don't want also my tax dollars to have to go to subsidize them to be on government assistance. So those are the reasons why the prevailing wage exists. You know, it's really interesting. A lot of uh, conservatives will cite uh, a UC Berkeley study out of two, in 2005 that said the prevailing wage rates uh, in California caused uh, low-income housing projects uh, to be anywhere from nine to 37 percent more expensive. But critics of that report said that they weren't, they didn't include some important other variables. Um, some of the things you're talking about, for example, the differences between public and private sector building design specifications, much higher when you're dealing with public sector building as opposed to a private sector building. They also didn't account for indirect uh, costs and benefits like enhanced sales tax revenues, non-wage benefits for workers, lower maintenance and repair costs, uh, reduced uh, occupational injuries and fatalities, and increasing the pool of skilled construction workers. So there were some things left out of that study uh, that's often cited. Um, but Pedro, I want to ask you, I want to give you the, the kind of the last word on that issue of prevailing wage and, and uh, public sector workers. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, why, why are they, why are unions so strong in the public sector? And is prevailing wage a good thing or a bad thing? Again, it, it goes to kind of what I, when I started off the segment, right, is the more money our Valley workers have on their pocketbooks, right, for their, for their families, the more that money is going to be used locally and it's going to circulate the economy and not leave, right? We, these folks, we, the only way we, we get the Valley out of poverty is by growing those middle-class jobs, you know? Um, so these prevailing wage jobs offer that, you know, I can't tell you the stories I've heard from like iron workers and other unionized folks in the building trades industry where a lot of them had dead end jobs, right? Um, minimal let, you know, minimum wage, they had kids, families to feed. Now they have a good wage, retirement benefits, pensions, whatever. And now they can, pay their kids to go to college. Now they have another opportunity, right? And so I think that's that's what it comes down to is we wanna have those jobs pay at the highest quality level. And we want those jobs to be local. We want folks from the Valley to get them, not not just workers from Arizona or from other other states, which is what tends to happen in 
non-unionized contractors. They import their workers from Arizona, Nevada, wherever you have. Yet we have people here in the Valley, homeless, that could use a job, put them in apprenticeship programs, get them trained, right. get them right. to a good job. Yeah, there's no question that, 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 that union scale jobs provide a, a, a decent standard of living. And that money does recirculate in the economy. Um, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the role of big labor in local Valley politics. Do they have too much influence, too little influence, or just the right amount of influence? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. The Maddie Daily e-newsletter provides you with a quick, comprehensive, and up-to-date look at what's happening in Valley politics, as well as what's happening in Sacramento and Washington, D.C. that impacts the Valley. Be more informed about what's happening in your community and your Valley. Sign up for the Maddie Daily e-newsletter at maddieinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with three key labor leaders about the future role of unions in the San Joaquin Valley. They are Tim Robertson with the North Valley Labor Federation, Dylan Savory, Savory with the Fresno Madera Labor Council, and Pedro Ramirez with the current Inyo Mono Labor Council. So Tim, um, let me start with you first. Um, I want to turn our conversation to the role of Valley unions in local politics. Critics say that unions distort the political process by electing friendly local politicians that can extract higher wages and benefits for public employees. A classic example um, in local politics is the role of public safety unions, police and fire, uh, the role they play in elections. Many Valley politicians on both sides of the aisle actively seek their endorsement. Uh, in many Valley cities, you know, public safety accounts for about 75% of a typical municipal budget. So what do you say to those who worry that when these labor-friendly candidates get elected, they're under enormous pressure to give into police and fire union demands for higher wages and pensions. I mean, the same thing can be said about school boards and, and teacher unions, but what are your thoughts on that, Ted? Yeah, I appreciate the, the question. Um, so you know, the, um, you know, there's a lot of people that are involved in local politics that are trying to get what they want. You know, you mentioned teachers unions. There are uh, charter school advocates that are seeking for-profit schools to take away tax money from public, publicly funded schools. Um, there are folks who'd like to privatize police and fire services. You know, labor is one entity that fights, um, that you know, supports candidates and pushes pushes them forward to try to seek for the benefit of working people. Now, I have never once found a place where an elected official that was supported by a union or a group of unions felt that they were entitled to do the bidding of that person. The negotiation for a contract starts then. Um, all of that said, the work that we do as the North Valley Labor Federation is on issues that benefit all workers. Um, is it affordable housing? Is it making sure that we have good quality schools that are accessible to all of our children? Is it making sure legal services are provided equitably and throughout our communities? Our local politics is about rising up all workers and making sure that local government is standing for everyone. And that's what we fight for. So, so Pedro, how do you respond to that question? Does, does labor have too much influence in, in local politics? No, I don't think it has enough to be honest, not in the Central Valley, right? If we're looking at um, labor in other parts of the country or the state, um, we see that their 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 um, their core unions are a lot more more stronger, a lot more integrated in um, laying out a policy agenda um, that benefits all workers, like like Tim said. So I I think we need to do more for our workers here in the valley, and that that includes investing more political capital um, up and down the valley. I'm sorry. So, um, so Dylan, what are, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, you, know, you look at elections in, in Fresno, in Clovis, for example. Uh, many candidates uh, are very proud on both sides of the aisle, very proud to tout uh, public safety endorsements. 
Yeah, I, I want to, well, I want to back up a little bit, but but first we should separate, you know, our, our labor council here at Fresno Madera Tulare Kings represents 50 labor unions. Police and fire, right, are their own entities at the municipal level. But, you know, when it comes to the labor movement, the 50 of us combined, how we interact in local politics, we have, we represent 100,000 workers in our jurisdiction, right? Do you, and, and each of them have a couple pennies an hour that come out of their paycheck that go to their union that then trickle into a bigger pot that we use to try to educate candidates that are already running about the issues that they should be aware of on behalf of working people. Do you want us that are representing 100,000 workers from all different walks of life interacting and getting people educated and, and making candidates accountable? Or do you want, you know, uh, a developer that runs housing tracks for profit, having him and his sister and his family and his brother and his three entities that he owns, putting $100,000 into a candidate's pocket and making them be the, the developer's choice, right? We are the, the folks that speak for the people, as Tim said, and we are counterbalancing the corruption that's already in politics. So so do you think you, you're a balance to the, the business interests um, that also lobby city council? Absolutely. Corporate America is responsible for all the corporation, uh, all of the corruption that exists inside of our, the American political system. The, the, the workers aggregately put their pennies together to try to put candidates, uh, you know, forward that actually speak for the people. You know, you, you actually are, are mentioning something that um, is an interesting topic, and that is, should public sector, I know that the Supreme Court has weighed in on this issue, but what are your thoughts on the Supreme Court uh, and their idea that you know fair share is no longer appropriate? It used to be fair share was a situation where if you were a public employee, you didn't have to pay for political action of, a, of your union, but you had to pay for their work on your behalf in negotiating contracts and handling grievances. Um, and so that was kind of the deal uh, from you know for, for 20 or 30 years. Uh, then the Supreme Court recently changed that and they said, no, no, if you require any kind of payment to the union, um, that that's an, some, somehow a violation of someone's free speech rights. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I'll go quickly and then let my colleagues finish okay. here. The, the reality is, is that decision was decided unanimously uh, the first time around. I believe it was in the 80s. And then we uh, watched as, again, corporate America went about their work, started uh, electing uh, politicians that to only confirm certain judges and they turned the bench over and they kept bringing that issue back until and, you know they want to weaken us because we are the counterbalance so yeah we're in a position now to fight but let me let me just put this out there uh, the fresno teachers association has a 99 percent membership rate in an open shop because they educate their members and because they fight like hell to make sure that their workers are taken care of and that is what corporate america put us back to is talking to our members more often and making sure that we are uh, organizing them along with the general public. So, so Tim, what, what is your feeling on, on that topic? I mean, the argument that you shouldn't force a worker uh, to pay any dues to, to a union. Yeah, and I would agree that with it is uh, corporate America that pushed, uh, pushed this because they respect, um, they're afraid of the power of working people standing together. So when they got that decision out of the Supreme Court that allowed public sector workers to opt out of paying dues, um, they thought that that was a big win. But as Dylan pointed out, we just got to work and started talking more to our members in the public sector about how important unions are and how important it is that we fund them so that we can do, again, pennies on the hour, as Dylan said, so that we can do the important work of advocating for working people. By and large, public sector workers are choosing 
to pay union dues because they appreciate the value that unions bring to them at the workplace and the value that the labor movement brings uh, to fighting for issues across the board. Yeah, I don't know if you want to argue that that that, that decision was a good thing in, in the sense that it brought unions closer to their members and uh, being, being more responsive. But one of the things a lot of people were concerned on the union side were concerned that that decision were, would result in really hurting unions, that people would, would peel away, they wouldn't pay dues. And what you're finding is not really that that members are still paying dues, even though now it's entirely voluntary. So it says something, frankly, about both sides of that argument. Um, on the one hand, maybe you didn't need to have dues to be required. And number two, on the other side, it shows you that employees do value what unions bring to the table. So Pedro, I want to let you, give you a chance to, you've got two minutes left uh, in this segment. Uh, what are your thoughts on this issue? Uh, I think it's important that we, as we organize our workers, it, it, we, we, we always relate to what, what the union can do for the member, right? Um, a lot of folks have taken the unions for granted uh, across the country here in the Valley. And so going back to the basics of educating the workers and not only on their workplace rights, you know, the contract that's negotiated, but what the role is really of a union in the community. I think a lot of folks can think the union when they, they, they think of it as the boogeyman, right? You, you always hear um, the Grover Norquist of the world label SEIU as a negative thing. But at the end of the day, the, the union is, are the workers, right? They're, they're the same people out in the community. They're your neighbors. You know, they're your brothers well, and sisters. Well, one of the things, frankly, you hear is that they're, yeah. you know, on the conservative side, they, they would argue that, you know, no, there's a difference between union leadership and the membership. How do you respond to that argument? A lot of unions, though, the membership are the leadership, right? They rise from the ranks, right? You hear the stories of, like, a, 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 a member that started off as, like, a clerk moving up the ranks and then, you know, getting up to union leadership or management, right? And so that's that's the story of upward mobility within within the labor movement, which again goes back to the the idea is that the unions not only bring good wages, but they create a system, a process where nepotism and favoritism aren't rampant and corruption isn't rampant, right? You you work hard, you stick with your job, you you are going to get rewarded for for sticking there long term, and I think that's one of the things that we're noticing right now in, in the pandemic and and with the the labor shortage, right? is a lot of these workers that have don't have those those contracts or those benefits, um, they're leaving the workforce. Yeah, and it might be, and maybe, maybe in a strange way, unions may help solve this whole uh, employment issue. I wanna thank our, our guests for joining us, Tim Robertson um, with the North Valley Labor Federation, Dylan Savaroy with the uh, Fresno Madera Labor Council and Pedro Ramirez with the Kern Inyo Mono Labor Council. Thanks all of you for joining us. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.